right, turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Let's ask the Lord to lead us again. Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, incredibly honest and solemn warning to this church in Laodicea. And Lord, I ask this morning as we as we study this, that you might, um, through the work of your Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and Lord, that you would feed your sheep this morning, that you would help me, um, that you might be honored and glorified in what we, what we study today. We ask for your help again. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in uh, Revelation chapter 3, and this is part 2 of 3. We will, Lord willing, conclude the letter to the church in Laodicea next week. Um, This message is subtitled Bootstrap Christianity. I think you're catching on, but if you're not paying attention, hopefully you'll get it this morning. Last, last week, we looked at the importance of the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was described in the introduction as the firstborn, the forerunner, um, present at creation, and what this renewing work looks like within the church. This is a necessary work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer in the body of Christ who is submitted to God. So what does this regular renewing and refreshment look like? Uh, Maddie and I were driving to church this morning and she asked me a, a very good question. What, why do churches have revivals? Very good question. And it's something that we should ponder. But I, my response to Maddie was it is the regular work or the life of the believer to be renewed and revived daily. We don't need to schedule the Holy Spirit once a year in order to achieve that. Not saying that the intent there is bad or uh, in any way dishonest, but the point is this, is we need the regular renewing work of the Spirit of God in our lives and his refreshment in our lives. And we looked at three key texts last week to give us um, this encouraging reminder 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our inner self is being renewed, made new again, day by day. What does the Spirit of God do for us? His mercies are, we talked about that this morning, His mercies are new when? Once a year, every day, every morning. The regular ongoing process in the Christian's life where we're taking every thought captive. We're bringing received data. We talked about that this week. We're bringing received, or last week, we're bringing received data into submission to Christ and to his word, putting down that which exalts itself against a renewed knowledge of him And this is the Christian battlefield. This is where the fight is. Jesus told um, the disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, 
He said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How frequently? Daily. And follow me. Let him take up his crosses, his cross daily and follow them. Follow me. The war is constant, isn't it? There's no break. There is no vacation. Satan doesn't lay down his arms against the life of the believer because we're tired. And Christ's admonition to take up the cross daily is important. He never tells the listeners to lay their cross down. Did you see that? So why does he tell us to take it up daily? Well, because guess what? In the life of the Christian, we become weary of the war. And what do we do? Lay the cross down. And it's easy to lay the cross down and walk away from it. And Jesus says every day, pick it up. The war is daily. Spiritual warfare. And this is a, a quote that I found. It was, it was good. So I will share it. It's not mine. It's uh, from a pastor by the name of Stanley Gale. He wrote the book of Vine Ripe in Life, Spiritual Fruitfulness Through Abiding in Christ. Love the name of that book, by the way. A Vine Ripened Life. He says this, spiritual warfare is not something extraordinary, but ordinary to life in a fallen world and much deserving of our study. It is conducted in weakness that seeks God's strength, in wisdom that applies God's truth, and in obedience that serves God's kingdom. Through it, the Spirit matures us in Christ and advances Christ's cause in this world. That is a good definition of spiritual warfare. But it is not something that is unusual to certain Christians. We, we talked about the mighty man of David this morning. Those were not the only men that went to war in all of Israel, by the way. They were men of renown. They were certainly special in, in, in regards to their measure of courage, but they were not the only men that went to war. And you and I are not to consider certain Christians special. Therefore, they're the ones that go do battle. The command to take up our cross daily is for each and every one of us. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 22 through 24, and Paul reminds the Ephesian church, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed. There's the word renovated or reformed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The Christian life is not reformation once a year. The Christian life is regular reformation. It is the putting off of the old, the putting on of the new. It is, as we talked about last week, the sorting of our laundry. It's an active process of self-evaluation that questions everything in light or subjection to God's word. That is why we change our minds on important matters, because we're growing, we're reforming. And that's a good thing. Romans 12, 2, we looked at, do not be conformed, fashioned alike, molded in the same pattern to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is evaluating 
our shape, if you will, to understand if we're pattern, pattern, patterning ourselves after the God of this age or Christ. I would encourage our teenagers to hear this point especially. There is no one under more pressure in this entire church body to conform than our young people. They're under immense pressure to shape your life to look just like the world. Don't do it. Paul says, do not be conformed, but be renewed in the renovation of your heart and life. That is your mind by testing what is the will of God, what is pleasing to God. There is no greater question than any young person can ask than this. What is pleasing to God? Not what's pleasing to mom and dad. That's important. But it's really um, subjective to the greater question, which is what is pleasing to God. First John 2, 15 through 19, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now Antichrist have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Where do Antichrists live? You ever thought about that? When we hear the term Antichrist, we think, we tend to think, because we've been programmed to think this way, it is some future character to come on the scene. And what is John doing? He says, little children, it's the last hour now. And in the middle of your group right now are many antichrists. What are those antichrists? Those are people who are against the Messiah. That's simply what it means, against Christ. And where do those people live? John tells them, they left you, they went out from you. Where is that? Your neighborhood? Your zip code? No, your church. In the church are antichrists. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be, become plain that they are not all of us. There is, and we see it everywhere, the talk of um, this mass ex exodus from evangelical belief. And we tend to think, as some would interpret it, that there are great numbers of people losing their salvation. No. No. These are great numbers of people who were never saved, who went out from us so that they might be made evident as to what they really are. Remember we talked about this last week. Christ is refining his church. He's refining his people. When we see somebody walk away from the faith that was delivered to them, and we thought they believed, and we marvel at the fact that they, they turn their backs on God's word and Christianity, and we think, oh, they must have lost their salvation. No, 
No. They never had it. This is, this is the warning, though, guys. In our group, as small as we are, there are people among us who think, who talk, who act like they belong and follow Christ. And yet they're not. It is incredibly important that we evaluate ourselves. Who are we? Are we shaped to fit to this world? Are we following their model? The God of this world, little g, or are we following Christ? The last week we looked at an introduction from the faithful and true witness. The real indictment against the church in Laodicea is that they were not faithful and true witnesses. And so we see this this comparison that Christ brings against the church. I am the faithful and true witness, he says. I am the amen. And we talked about in, in detail what the amen was and the fact that in historical um, biblical precedent, the, the use of the term amen is to bind ourselves in commitment to God's word. Christ is the very expression of truth, the binding fulfillment, if you will, of all of God's promises. And he has obligated the church in Smyrna, just as he has obligated us to be faithful, to be true witnesses of the gospel and they were failing miserably in this obligation and lest we sit there and think well that was them we're not them we're good you have to be careful leads us to point two which is where i want to camp out this morning point number two um the rebuke and verses 15 through 18. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. As we start in verse 15, I want to remind you of the context that we have from Laodicea that we looked at last week. Laodicea was a wealthy town and it was known for its industry. It was a banking community. It was a textile community. They made, by the way, interestingly, black or darkly um, um, dyed um, apparel, which is very interesting in terms of Jesus's rebuke and his encouragement to buy of him white raiment. But remember, it was also a pharmaceutical town. It was known for its advancements in eye medicine, optometry. They made ISAF. And while wealthy Laodiceans seemed to have everything they could possibly want, it lacked a fundamental and critical resource. We talked about this last week as well, water. Unlike the mountain towns that had cold water streams like Colossae that was 10 miles to the east of them or 
Hierapolis, which was six miles away, that had access to hot springs, Laodicea had no water supply of its own, so the water had to be piped through aqueducts from several miles away. And by the time that it arrived, it was, you guessed it, lukewarm, full of sediment, not exactly appealing. Cold water was good for drinking. Hot water has its medicinal uses. But what does lukewarm water have for a purpose? Blah. This is the context of the church in Laodicea. And Jesus uses these very real temporal conditions to illustrate a greater spiritual truth to the church. And he says, and we've seen this refrain multiple times. He says it to every church. I know your works. What is he trying to communicate there? While everyone else is judging our works from what they see, how they perceive us to be, does Jesus know us? Really know us? Yeah, he does. He says, I know your works. And by implication here, he is telling them, I know your works, but you don't. Well, how do we know that? Because he goes on to say later on that he said they don't realize, verse 17, that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus knows their works, but they don't. And so there's an indication here of self-deception. This should be a warning to us. These are Christians. Scripture here is not saying that this church is full of unbelievers. So how do they deceive themselves? Well, they're not as smart as us. Mm. Now, that wouldn't be right. There's an indication here of self-deception. And while we are certainly susceptible to false teaching and must guard against it, there is a much more um, dangerous enemy for you and I to contend with than the false teacher that we may listen to or not listen to. Who's the real enemy here? Yes. And the question that I would ask each one of us this morning is, can we trust our own assessment of ourselves? Can we trust our own assessment of ourselves? How do you answer that one? Well, Christ sees what we do not, doesn't he? He sees the thoughts, the intents. When Jesus was talking about what defiled a man, he said, it's not what goes in, what you eat. We spend a lot of time and attention on what we put into ourselves, don't we? We don't want to defile our bodies. We want to take care of ourselves and be healthy. And Jesus says, that's not what defiles you. What defiles you is what comes out of you. And it's a very valid question that we should be asking ourselves, which is, can we trust our own assessment of ourselves? Jeremiah 17, 9, a verse you know very well, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, and ESV says sick. And I don't like that word because it's not really a proper translation. You know what the original text says in Hebrew? Yeah. Is there a difference between sick and wicked? A little bit. One makes me feel just a little bit better. Oh, I got a cold. Oh, I got evil. There's a big difference. What makes us feel slightly better about ourselves? 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Not us. That's what he's saying. Galatians 6, 7, Paul warns the Galatian church, do not be deceived. Why would he tell the Christian church that? Why, was he, why would he warn the church, do not be deceived? Guys, because it can happen. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever one sows, that also will he reap. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You hear what Paul is saying? Those that are practicing those sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. We do all sorts of creative restatements of God's word to get around that very clear statement, which is those who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's funny, we pick certain, certain ones out of that list in our current climate and culture to make us feel better. Nobody is arguing that thieves or greedy or drunkards won't be in the kingdom of God. But we will make excuse for all sorts of sexual immorality up to and including I was born this way. Yes, we were born sinners. And apart from the grace of God, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news, verse 11, and such were some of you. For those of you that are hearing the argument, I was born this way, I cannot help it. Guess what Paul says? Such were some of you, past tense. Guess what God does when he saves a sinner? He makes them a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. He can change the perverted. He can change the addicted. But such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The most terrifying words in all of Scripture, by my assessment, as minuscule as it might be, are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. Jesus is saying that there were some who claimed his name, some who claimed that they were followers of Christ. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. What is the will of the father? Jesus says it many times. The will of the father is for you to believe on the son. That's the will of the father. There are many who claim the name of Christ. And all the monikers that go along with it. Christianity, if you will. And then here are the scary words. On that day, many will say to me, what is that day, by the way? That day in which we will stand before God and his judgment seat. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. 
In other words, here's the proof, Lord. And then when I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What are these people saying? They have the audacity to stand before God in their self-deception and say, I'm one of yours. And Jesus is going to clear it up. I don't know you. There are many, many people who say they know Christ. The question is not, do we know Christ? The question is, does Christ know us? Most terrifying words in all of scripture. Our accountability to each other is incredibly critical. There is a reason we're here this morning. We're accountable to each other. That's why the body of Christ is so vital to our spiritual well-being. In Genesis chapter 31, there is a covenant made between Jacob and Laban. Laban is the father-in-law. Jacob is serving seven, what he thought was seven years, and then ends up serving 14 years for the tender-eyed daughter, and then the one that he really wanted. So he's serving 14 years, and he serves his time, and he sneaks away from Laban. Laban catches up with him, but God comes to Laban in a dream and says, don't touch Jacob. Now, Jacob is a sniveling, whiny little wimp who doesn't have the courage to stand up to his father-in-law, and he slinks away in the dead of night. And God comes to Laban and says, he's my chosen. Don't touch him. But Laban goes to him and confronts him. And remember, um, Jacob's wife had stolen some of the items from her father's house. And at the end of all of it, Jacob and Laban make a covenant. And Laban says, the Lord watch between you and me. This is a good covenant for dads, by the way, for future son-in-laws. Remember this, Mark. I like this because I'm doing the same. The Lord watch between you and me when you are out or we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, God is witness between you and me. And he's going to tell me. There's a picture of accountability that is shown to us in covenant language. And I was thinking about this. Why do we, why do we have church membership? Why do we have a church family? We are united as part of a covenant family. And when we started this church almost 10 years ago, we had a founding membership covenant. Do you guys remember it? I know you read it every day. It's on our website. And I was looking at it, and and I just wanted to remind us of this this morning. And this is what it says. As God established the new covenant with his elected Christ, the church resolves to covenant together for the glory of God, the edification of of the church, and the advancement of the gospel. Quote, having been brought into fellowship with God by divine grace through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, And having been led by his mercy to give up ourselves to him and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and believing God's call to be a church that intentionally seeks and savors the the glory of God in all things, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly 
and joyfully establish our covenant with each other for the glory of God, the edification of the church, and the advancement of the gospel. Now, there are some in this room that were not here when we made that, that promise to each other, that covenant. And here were the, the nine points of that. We will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Amen. We will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves to, together or, ne or neglect to pray for others and ourselves. We will endeavor to bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord all who are in any time under our care. By a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our families and friends. Number five, we will, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each, bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Number six, we will seek by divine aid to live Godward lives in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that as we have been buried symbolically by baptism and raised again spiritually with Christ, we are called to lead a new and holy life. Number seven, I wonder if the church in Laodicea had something along these lines. Number seven, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we maintain its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines as a local congregation. We will continue, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations in obedience to Christ. Number eight, if any of our members are providentially relocated, we will help them unite with another Bible-believing church. And then number nine, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with us all. Amen. Good covenant, isn't it? And it still stands. And guess what? The Lord heard us when we made that promise, and he holds us accountable for it as we say amen to it. Um, Jesus sees and knows what we do not, and we need each other's um, guard on our lives to, to maintain accountability, and we need God's word to hold us accountable, accountable as well. Verse 15, part B, you are either cold or neither cold nor hot. In the Greek, it means you are neither chilly nor boiling. Now, there's a traditional view that I would say is, if you've heard messages on this passage before, you're going to hear the following. And I caveat this by saying I am a, a huge fan of John Gill. John Gill was um, a predecessor to Spurgeon in that same church, phenomenal Baptist pastor and preacher. And I read his, um, his uh, commentary frequently, right up there with Matthew Henry. He says this, and I would call this the traditional view of understanding this passage. He says, cold. He says that thou art neither cold nor hot. She was not cold or without spiritual life, at least in many of her members, as all men by nature are, and carnal professors be. She was alive, but not lively. 
nor was she wholly without spiritual affections and love to God and to Christ, to his people, ways, truth, and ordinances. She had love, but the fervency of it was abated. Nor was she without spiritual breathings and desirings altogether as dead men are, or without the light and knowledge of the gospel and a profession of it. And she was not hot. Her love to God and of Christ and of the saints was not ardent and flaming. It was not like coals of fire that give most vehement flame, which many waters cannot quench, that had not fervency of spirit in the service of the Lord, nor was she zealous for the truths of the gospel and for the ordinances of it and for the house of God and its discipline, nor did she warmly oppose all sin in every error and false way, unquote. What is, what is Gil espousing here in terms of interpreting of this passage? Well, the traditional view of this is hot is good and cold is bad, right? Are you picking up on that as I, as I read through this quote? Would that you were either cold or hot. There are some that as they read it like Gil, they're, they're almost saying you're better off if you're, if you're cold, meaning bad, than lukewarm, which is in between, or hot. And I don't believe that this should be understood as Christ advocating for extremes here, either hot or cold. Remember, in the context of Laodicea, water was good, right? We like water. It's necessary for life. It's important. What do you do with hot water? Thank you. (laughs) Time for another cup. With hot water, we have coffee. Guess what else we have? That most of you, if not all of you, I'm sure took advantage of before you came to this point. Yes. Cleanliness. It's a good thing. It does away with the stinkiness. But, but cold water is not without its use either, is it? As I said last week, did you go to your tap and get a cup of lukewarm water this morning to drink? No. So water is good, Okay. Cold water's good. It has its purposes. Hot water's good. It has its purposes. What is Jesus saying about this church? You're not cold. You're not hot. You're lukewarm. You're between the two opposite poles that are good, and you're not serving a purpose. So what is the purpose? Cold water refreshes, doesn't it? Hot water cleanses. What is Jesus telling the church in Laodicea? You are neither refreshing to the culture around you, nor are you medicinal to the culture around you. He's not talking about cold is bad, hot is good, and you're here on the spectrum. It's, context is, is incredibly key. Verse 16, he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is where I ask you what your lunch plans are for today. If you have the stomach to look it up, there is something that warm water is good for. If you would Google uh, inducement of vomiting, what do they tell you? Get hot water? Nope. Get cold water? Nope. Get lukewarm? Warm water? to induce vomiting. And there are reasons that you should induce vomiting. Um, If you've been poisoned, I would encourage you drink a cup of warm water, induce vomiting. 
there's there's uh, some scientific backing to this. And you're all sitting there wincing, like, why are we talking about this? So I asked you what your plans for lunch are. Nobody likes to talk about vomiting. It induces your gag reflex, doesn't it? If you're one, if you're a person like me and one of the kids is sick and it's the flu and that's the worst thing they could possibly have and you're trying to help them and they're just in the middle of losing it and you're, you're just, you, you're all picturing this, right? And, and I can see you're getting uncomfortable. I can see you're squeaming or squeamish. We went fishing yesterday and I was baiting the hook with the worm. And that worm, when I was putting him on the hook repeatedly over and over, skewering him, he was wiggling. He was uncomfortable, just like you are when we talk about vomit. That's by design. You know what God wants you to do when he mentions the the word? And it's not the word spit. Again, we clean these things up. We try and make them more palatable. Slobber is way better than vomit. It just is. So I will spit you out of my mouth. We don't encourage spitting in our house, but it's way better than vomiting. Again, we water things down, no pun intended. You're thinking I'm not comfortable with this. And that is exactly the point of what Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea. I'm not comfortable with you. You make me very uncomfortable. I remember many, many years ago, family in one of our churches came to my dad and said, you stop talking about the blood of Christ. It makes one of our children incredibly squeamish. It's not comfortable. You know what my dad said? It's not supposed to make you comfortable. It's not supposed to. The warning to the church in Laodicea is by nature supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's supposed to make our stomach rumbly as we think about it. Well, why? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Think about this. And this is incredibly applicable in our culture. In America, We have our ups and downs economically, but guess what? None of us went without clothes this morning. I would, I would venture to say none of us went willingly or unwillingly, unwillingly without breakfast this morning. We are a wealthy nation, a wealthy culture. What was this church guilty of though? Their, their, their guilt was not wealth, but their guilt was what wealth did to them. Their material status had become a barometer of their spiritual well-being. Think about that for a minute. Their material status had become a barometer of their spiritual well-being. Their statement was, we are rich and growing richer. If you wanted a good advertisement for an investment firm, that's what you'd love to hear, right? We will make you rich. And when we do, you will grow richer. Invest with us. In Psalm 49, verse 5, David says this, the sweet psalmist of Israel, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? 
Verse six, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. There have been wealthy people trying to buy eternal life as long as mankind has existed. And it's still happening. And you know what? Money can't stop the wrinkles. It can't. The wealthiest of men die and leave their wealth to another. And the psalmist rightfully reminds us that it money does nothing to buy us eternal security. Psalm 62.10, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches come, set not your heart on them. Riches may come. Was David rich? He ended up that way, didn't he? But he started out as a little shepherd boy. If riches come, so be it, and thank the Lord for them. But don't set your heart on them. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. That's a good one. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Do you think God cares about how much money Elon Musk has when he stands before him? No. We can admire men like that for their entrepreneurial spirit their great achievements in this life and, and their contributions to society, right? But that means nothing when one stands before God. By the way, I'm not picking on Elon Musk. Those Tesla batteries last a long time. Matthew chapter 13. What did Jesus say regarding the parable of the sower? As for what was sown, verse 22, among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and what? The deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches. Why do riches deceive? Well, money's evil, right? This is where you quote, Money is the root of all evil, right? Don't argue with me, Mark. Their sin was not in acquiring material wealth. Let's lay the groundwork there. Wealth may come. Their sin was not in acquiring wealth, but that in so doing, it led them to the conclusion that it bought them spiritual safety. That's why riches are deceptive. Because guess what? And and we hear this with the prosperity gospel all the time. If God favors you, what? What is the evidence of God favoring you? We'd love that word. Yeah. The evidence of God favoring you. Yes. Yes. Money is the root of all evil, true or not. It's a partial truth. Yes. You know what those who quote money as the root of all evil are saying? I don't have money and neither should you. That's really what we're saying, right? I have not been blessed financially and thou shalt not either. That's not what scripture's saying here. We have to be biblical. 
Yes, that's comical, but we have to be biblical, right? First Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he's, he's talking about the dangers of thinking that, and listen, this is applicable in our culture. It has been very profitable to be a Christian in the South, hasn't it? If you're running for political office, mark it down. I was a Sunday school teacher, or I was a deacon in my church. It's on your resume. Why? Because it's profitable. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing, listen to this, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. When I was a little kid, I always wanted to take my pillow to heaven and this verse ruined me. So I wanted to take my pillow with me. Doesn't know that ratty pillow. We saved it, right? It's still in the closet. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire, listen to this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. This is a deceptiveness of riches. What do riches tell you? Well, if if I have acquired you, I have somehow got enough. What's the problem with the wealthy when they are pursuing wealth as the end of their life? Just a penny more. Just a penny more. Just a penny more. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, and the word craving there is the the stretching for, the hankering of your life. If you are stretching in your life to be rich, beware. Beware. And this is such a balance, right? We have families to take care of. We have bills to pay. We have mouths to feed. This is a balance. But if you're stretching for it as your life's goal, he says some have wandered or been seduced away from the faith and pierced them through themselves with many pangs question this morning is what is the goal of your life look in an undistorted mirror are you generous with your resources we talked about that this morning and i say your resources how do you view your resources well my 401k is going swimmingly if yours is great not many people's are right now are you generous with your resources do you use them for hospitality. You use your resources to bless the brethren and care for those that have need. You might say, well, no, I'm saving. 
I'll remember what Paul said above. When, when you die, you will be sharing plenty because you're not taking it with you. You're not taking your savings. You're not taking your money market account. You're not taking your 401k. You're not taking your life insurance policy. None of it goes with you. So what are you doing with it? I remember in 2008 when the financial crisis hit. And I don't know if you remember this, but there are tons of reports on the news about suicides. There were people that just ended their lives over the financial collapse or, or incredibly bad financial downturn in 2008. Forbes magazine reported, quote, a dramatic spike in suicides between 2008 and 2010 that it can be linked with the economic crisis. According to a study published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, researchers from the University of Oxford who didn't commit suicide, no, I added that, compared suicide data from before 2007 with the years of the crisis and found that more than 10,000 economic suicides associated with a recession across the United States, Canada, and Europe occurred. More than 10,000 people killed themselves because of their financial losses. What does that tell you? What does that tell you regarding their lives? And by the way, I'm in the camp that we're facing a potentially greater financial crisis. There is much to say about monetary policy in scripture. Are you aware of that? In Proverbs 20, 23, it says, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. You know what manipulation of currency is? False scales. False scales. Code for inflation. And everybody's feeling inflation now, right? We all feel it. Gas pump, groceries. You know what that is? That is monetary policy manipulation of our currency. It's called theft. What did we just read a few minutes ago? What we sow, we will reap. And our payday is coming economically. I think the Lord is going to provide an opportunity to test and challenge us on where our security lies. When you look at the upcoming elections coming in November, what's the number one issue in the polls? Trump's everything, doesn't it? Um, and you think about abortion. It's a big deal what the Supreme Court accomplished. But what's the number one issue on everybody's minds? Why? Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. However, it can be. When our security is tied to our bank accounts, we have a problem. We do. And none of us want to be robbed, by the way. That's not an unbiblical position to hold. But here, Paul's warning to the Laodicean church in Colossians chapter two. Did you know Paul talked to the Laodiceans just like John writes the letter? Go to Colossians chapter two and look at verses one through five. This is Paul talking to the Laodicean church. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all, all those who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Listen to Paul. He's writing to the Laodiceans. They're a wealthy church. Listen to what Paul is saying. 
My prayer for you is that you reach all the riches of what? Full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What is Paul telling him? Church in Laodicea, it's not what's in your bank account. Real wealth is understanding what you have in Christ. He goes on to say in verse 3, in whom are hidden, listen to this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is using financial language for the church in Laodicea to warn them, isn't he? In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Paul does not write to the Laodicean church and say, write a check for everything in your bank account and give it to the poor. Doesn't say that, does he? What does he warn them about? Don't, do not link your spiritual life to your bank account. By the way, our, our financial condition is also is many times a reflection of our spiritual condition. And we need to understand that. But he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What is Paul telling them? The real wealth church is in treasuring Christ. That's wealth. Your bank account is going to ebb and flow. It's great to get raises. It's great to get promotions. But guess what? We're going to die. Treasure Christ. First Timothy 6.17, Paul warns Timothy, or tells Timothy to warn those he's ministering to. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What, is Paul, what does Paul tell Timothy regarding the wealthy? Tell them to give up all their money? Again, not what he's saying. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Where is our hope? This church, because they were growing in wealth, they were deceived into thinking they didn't need Christ. And here is the essence of the deception that we must be warned about. They were prospering financially, and they, they equated that prosperity with the fact that they didn't need Christ. And, and their attitude was this, I need nothing. Remember when the earthquake came to Laodicea, what happened? They were Laodicean strong. They built it back themselves. Talked about bootstrap Christianity. And I found, I, I did some research on where that came from. Do you realize in the 1800s, in 1843, if you go back in the archives at the Madison City Express, which was a newspaper. Yes, they wrote and read in 1843. They had newspapers. And in that newspaper, um, this quote was found. Quote, his excellency is certainly attempting to lift himself up by his bootstraps or what is much better is sitting in a wheelbarrow to wheel himself. It paints a pretty vivid 
picture, right? It's the fallacy of self-deception. That's what he, that's what this illustrates. Jesus says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. You don't realize. The word realize here is the same exact word in the Greek. It's the word oida. When Jesus says, I know your works, that's the word. I know it's the word oida. Jesus says, you don't know what I know. They did not see their true spiritual state. They had an absolute need for Christ and didn't see it. So verse 18, listen to what Jesus says, and we're winding down, I promise. I counsel you to buy. Here's your financial advisor. Okay? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I strongly advise you to buy from me. The idea of buying there is to go to market. So here's the question. Jesus gives them a spiritual shopping list. How do you buy How do you buy spiritual items? How do you do it? See, this is a great paradox right here. Look at what Jesus is saying. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. Think about that for a minute. How do I buy from Jesus gold refined by the fire? The first thing the wealthy person is going to say is, How much do I have in my bank account? And then guess what? The same man or woman that says, Jesus, I don't need you. All of a sudden comes to the realization that, wait a second, my money, my resources, my wealth can't buy what Jesus is telling me to buy. So what do I do? What do I do? Jesus is commanding me to go to the marketplace and buy from him. How do I do that? Well, there's a very simple answer here. You can't. You can't. This is is the answer to everyone that said, I don't need Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 55, and this is most likely hearkening back to this statement in Isaiah 55. Verse one, come, everyone who thirsts. We're talking about water here today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Listen, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Wait a second. He who has no money, come buy or purchase and eat. How does that work? How does that work? Amen. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And Isaiah continues, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Wait a second. What are you talking about, Isaiah? Why do you spend your, we buy groceries all the time. All the time we buy groceries. 
Why do we spend that money for that which is not bread? What is he talking about? You're confusing two subjects. That's what he's saying. Your money can't buy you the bread that sustains you spiritually. He says, and, why, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. How often do we encounter people, maybe when we look in the mirror, who are constantly saving up for that next gadget, constantly saving up or looking to spend money on that next thing? Why? Because it'll satisfy them. They think. We all know people like that that move from one thing to the next. And it's sad because you see them searching for satisfaction in what they can buy. Isaiah says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. As we wrap up, here's what we get when we treasure Christ. Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, go to the marketplace and buy this. The gold that he gives is what? Pure. How do we get pure gold? Sticking in a fire. What does scripture tell us regarding purified gold as it relates to us? First Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gold that he gives us is tested and genuine faith. Jesus is saying, go to the market and buy tested and genuine faith. You say, well, I can't buy that. You know why? Because faith is a gift. It is his grace. You can't sit here and in this room today and say, I don't need Jesus because what you, what you have to have from him, you can't buy. You can't earn. He says, and, and by the way, note this, those that have financial prosperity, for Christians that have financial prosperity, that does not exempt us from refinement. Which sure would be nice to think. We here in America have it made. We're exempt. I, I tell you this again and again. That's why the rapture is so popular in our culture is because we're too good to go through the fire. That's really what we're saying, guys. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters all over the world are being refined and purified and tried in the fire. And we're sitting here thinking because we're Americans and we're wealthy, we're, we're good, we're better. We don't have to go through that. So when it gets bad, we're out of here. He says, buy of me white garments. What are the white garments? Revelation 7, verse 13, and one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said, listen to this. These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Another paradox. How do you get white robes when you wash them in blood? 
How's that possible? It is the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea, you're naked and you don't even know it. We say it in our context, you're stark naked. You don't even know it. They weren't resting in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus says, buy of me. In other words, I will pay for it. If you will humble yourselves and come to me and say, I need you. Guess what? He foots the bill. Then the last thing he says is, go to the market and buy ISAF. What is this? He says, you need ISAB so that you can see. What did they not see? Well, they didn't see their own spiritual condition. They didn't see who they were in Christ. Jesus is saying, buy of me real spiritual discernment. Well, how does that happen? 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen. Remember what we talked about in Sunday school this morning? What was David expecting? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has, listen, these things God has revealed to us through what? Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not, or we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given of us by God. Did you catch that? That we might understand the things freely given to us from God. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? So as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. It always comes back to this, doesn't it? You must be born again. And the question that I will keep repeating from this pulpit over and over is, have you been born of the spirit of God? Have you been born again? Say, well, how do I know if I've been born again? Well, if you haven't been born again, the things of God are foolishness to you. You don't care about them. You're pretending. You're fitting in with the crowd but they don't matter. They really don't matter. You're worried about other things. There are people that are, you know, who are not concerned about whether or not they're elect that aren't elect. You ever thought about that? If you're constantly dealing with the question, how do I know I'm saved? There's, there's a, a good probability that your spiritual life concerns you. That's good. It's a good thing. If you don't think about it, that should be a warning sign to, to us. 
To be born again is to be born again of the Spirit of God. He gives life to dead people who are dead in here and who see themselves as dead. Question for us this morning is, do you see? Say, I do see. Well, the answer is, blessed are your eyes, for they have seen. Because if your eyes see, some of you look tired this morning and a little bit bleary-eyed. This morning, it's because God gave you eyes to see. And who do we thank for that? Him. If you understand your blindness, then go to the marketplace of the soul and do business with Christ. Give him your nothing and cast yourself on the unmeasured generosity and grace of Christ. Yes, I said that right. Give him your nothing, all of it, and cast yourself on his grace and his generosity.